Good morning. Welcome to Trinity. My name is DJ. I'm not usually the guy that does that, but I am one of the pastors here, so this part will probably go a little bit better, hopefully. Um, and if you're thinking, well, we've had enough of you, sorry, you're going to have to suffer through another 30, 40 minutes of it. But uh, I'm excited to be preaching this morning to be reopening the Gospel of Matthew and leading us in our study of it. Uh, it's been some time now since we were in Matthew. We took a break for Christmas, uh, looked through the, the uh, Psalms, the songs that prophesied the coming of a Savior, the hope that they promised to us, and now we're jumping back into the pattern that we've been on for the last year of working through the book of Matthew, the story of the life, the, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. We love the Bible here at Trinity because we believe it's how we see Jesus. It's how we know him. We know who God is. We know who we are and how we relate to God. And so we walk through books of the Bible week by week, paragraph by paragraph, to try to understand what it says in its context and then apply it to our lives today. So this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, uh, and looking at verses 15 through 21. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to take it out and turn with me. Uh, there are also copies in the seat back, uh, or in the seat bottom in front of you if you don't have a Bible with you this morning. Um, we're going to be in Matthew 12, verses 15 through 21. Uh, and if we look at the text this morning and it seems a bit familiar to you, well, there's a reason for that. So this morning's text is going to center around a promise from the book of Isaiah about what the Savior would do, who he would be, the type of ministry he would have. In that respect, it's going to be very similar to what we've looked at over the past month out of the Psalms, these promises, these longings and hopes about the coming of Christ. It's a promise today that we're going to see that the Savior would do something great, something with significance that would echo down throughout all of human history. It's a promise that literally has changed the course of world history. Everything, including us, is different because this was fulfilled. And it's a promise that completely took the people of Jesus' day by surprise. Now, if you've been with us through our study of Matthew's gospel, as we've seen Jesus' life and ministry, if there's one thing that we've learned so far about him, about the way he lived, the way he taught, it's that things didn't usually turn out the way people expected. His ministry didn't look like the idea that most people had in their minds. In fact, if I could sum it all up in the words of the great philosopher Luke Skywalker, who said, this is not going to go the way that you think. Christ's ministry was unexpected. He took the people of his day, even good God-fearing Jews who were longing for the coming of the Savior, he took them by surprise. He didn't meet the expectations that they had. And he continues to take people, he continues to take us by surprise, even today. So I ask you as we start our study this morning, have you ever been taken by surprise by Jesus? Have you ever had something in your life go in a way that you totally did not expect, only to be able to look back and see and realize that God was working in and through it for your joy? Have you ever read something in the Bible, seen something Jesus said or did, and thought, huh, that's not how I figured that would go. That's, that's not how I would have done that. Well, in the text we're looking at this morning, we'll see that Jesus is going to do something unexpected. He's going to do something that surprised the people who watched and saw him, but he's going to do something that was actually the fulfillment of a promise from hundreds of years before. 
He's going to do exactly what God promised he would do. And as we read that and as we see it, it's a good and powerful reminder to us to let God set the expectations for what following Jesus is going to look like, not bringing our own expectations onto what Jesus says. So let's look together at Matthew 12. I'm going to read verses 15 through 21, and we will study it together. It says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we look at it together. Our God and Father, we ask as we come to your word this morning, as we see a Savior who is beyond what we could expect or imagine, as we study your word together, Father, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us. By the power of your spirit and your good grace. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. All right, so when we last left off in Matthew, which has been a little while, right? It's been about a month since we opened this book. But when we last left off, we need to kind of revisit where we are in context. What was going on? And, And what we found when we last left off was Jesus was clashing with the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're going to have to be more specific because that basically describes half the book of Matthew so far, right? Jesus and the Pharisees are always butting heads. They're always doing this. And so what specifically was going on? Well, Jesus was being criticized by these religious leaders for healing people on the Sabbath day, right? The Sabbath day was sacred in Jewish observance. You were supposed to do no work. It was a day of rest. And Jesus was healing people, and the Pharisees were getting all bent out of shape about that. And so Jesus basically faces them, confronts them with their own hypocrisy and says that he, as, as the Savior, as the promised Messiah, is Lord of the Sabbath. He sets the rules for what is appropriate on the Sabbath, namely love and justice and mercy. And the Pharisees don't make the rules, which was burdens that they were laying on the people that they had to follow. And so that exchange ended with the Pharisees beginning to hatch their plot to destroy Jesus. They want this guy gone, out of the way, out of their hair. And in verse 14, that's what they do. And that's a theme that is only going to get louder as we move through the rest of the book. Verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So when we pick up in verse 15 and it says, Jesus, aware of this, that's the this. Jesus is aware that they are plotting to destroy him, that the Pharisees hate him and they want him out of the picture. And so this morning... We see, when we get this first inkling of the Pharisees' plot being hatched, how will Jesus respond? How will Jesus respond to the confrontation and the knowledge that they are seeking to destroy him? And this is where we see, once again, Jesus taking unexpected actions. Because what does he do in response to this threat from the Pharisees? He leaves. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Right? He doesn't press the fight. He doesn't continue to go back and forth with them. He doesn't rally a bunch of supporters around him. He leaves. 
He walks away from the exchange. He knows what's going on in the Pharisees' heads, and he leaves the area. So the question is why? Is he afraid of them? Well, certainly not. Right? We've already seen that the reason Jesus came is ultimately to die. To die for his people, to save them from their sins. So he knows where his life is headed. He is on a collision course that will eventually end with the Pharisees in Jerusalem and him being betrayed and crucified. But that time had not yet come. He still has work to do. He still has people to minister to. So he walks away from the fight. He withdraws from the area. He doesn't take the bait of a further engagement with these leaders who really just want, excuse me, just want to argue. Just want to, to, to tear Jesus down in view of all the people so that they can keep their influence. They can keep the place of power that they have over the people of Israel. So Jesus leaves. He withdraws. He does something unexpected and gets out of Dodge. Now, we might think this would lead to a season of solitude for Jesus, right? Away from Capernaum, where he's been based for a while, away from the crowds. But as we found before, Jesus getting away from crowds is easier said than done, right? Because the people are magnetized by him, and so they follow him. Verse 15, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. So Jesus withdraws, he goes away, the crowds follow. What does he do? Well, he keeps on doing what he's been doing. He heals everybody who comes to him. He shows compassion on this crowd, and he continues to minister among them. But then he does something else unexpected too, right? Verse 16, he healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen this in Matthew's gospel, where Jesus is healing people, and he says, tell no one what has happened to you. Tell no one who did this for you. And I think every time we hit one of these instances, if you're like me, we ask the same question over again. Why would he do this? It doesn't seem to make any sense. Why would he do these miracles and then say, keep it quiet? Don't tell anybody. How can he expect that to happen? This wouldn't have made sense to the people of his day, right? They expected the Messiah to be a very public figure. They expected him to be a political leader who would drive the Romans out, who would rule and reign over his people, who would set things to right, who would take the stage. And so a, a Messiah who would say, tell no one what's happened to you, keep this quiet, would not have made any sense to the people who were following Jesus. And, and if we're honest... It doesn't make much sense to us today. This is not how you build a brand, is it? If you're wanting to start a company, start a business, you go out into the marketplace and you sell a product to somebody and they're really, really pleased with your product or your service or whatever it is you're selling. And you, they say, man, this is great. I'm going to go write a review online on, on your business. And you say, no, 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 no. Shh, keep it quiet. Don't tell anybody. That's not, you know, the advertising professionals would say, what are you thinking? Right? You need to get the word out. And so we see Jesus doing this, and we think, well, why, why would he do that? So once and again, we see Jesus doing things in his ministry that strike us as strange, as backwards. Why is that? Well, it's because I think we assume that Jesus values the same things we do. And we assume that he's working towards the same goals that we would work towards in his situation. But what we find here is that Jesus takes unexpected actions because he's pursuing a different goal entirely. He's doing something 
that wouldn't have crossed the people of his day's minds. It wouldn't necessarily cross our minds either. But he's doing something that has been promised for generations. So that's where the meat of our passage lies this morning in verses 17 through 21, as we see Jesus took unexpected actions. But he took unexpected actions in order to bring about promised results. And in order to fulfill things that God had long ago said were going to come about. So verse 17, Jesus, or verse 17, Matthew tells us that Jesus' action here was a fulfillment of one of Isaiah's prophecies. And it's the prophecy, the first four verses anyway, of the one that Dave read for us in the scripture reading this morning. Isaiah 42. It says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So Matthew says he withdraws, he goes away, he heals people, but he tells them, tell no one. And this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied right here. Now, if you're like me, you might read that and think, I don't know that I see the connection. How is Jesus withdrawing from the crowds, moving away, keeping quiet about what he does? How is that a fulfillment of what Isaiah promises here? Well, I think the best way to understand it is to ask ourselves, what's the big picture promise that Isaiah is prophesying here in these verses that are quoted? And the big promise comes, I think, and is highlighted in the last verse of the passage where it says, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope, right? The notion of hope for the Gentiles, Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, the nations of the earth, hope for the nations is the central promise of the text that Matthew quotes. He says, it will, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles in his name, the Gentiles will hope. There's some other he will statements in this prophecy, but all of them are talking about how Jesus is going to go about fulfilling this central promise to bring hope to the Gentiles. Now, like we said, Jesus did a whole lot of things that were unexpected in his public ministry. But I would suggest to you there were few things about his ministry that would be as unexpected to the people of his day as it being about hope for the Gentiles. Right? Messiah was supposed to be for the Jews, for the people of Israel, a savior for his people. Jesus says, I've come to extend God's grace and favor and fellowship to the nations, to the Gentiles, to those who are on the outside looking in, not just the Jewish people. See, the Jewish people largely had disdain for the Gentiles, right? They were outsiders. They were unclean. They were dogs. They were those who rebelled against God and oppressed his people. In the minds of most Jews of the day, the Gentiles were an obstacle to be conquered, to be dealt with, not an opportunity for the hope of God to spread. But Jesus turns from debate with the religious leaders. And instead, he ministers to those who are forgotten, the lowly, the outcast, the unimportant, and as he does this, he is establishing, he is building exactly the type of ministry that can result in hope for the Gentiles. One focused on the unexpected, 
on the lowly, on the unremarkable. See, we tend to think about influence. We tend to think about importance in terms of what this world sees as important. We think that we need to be bigger, louder, more influential in order to make a difference in the lives of the people around us. We need to be powerful. And Jesus says, not so much. God doesn't value that like we do. Consider the words of God through the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth in the first century. Now, this is a church of Gentiles who were really, really caught up in what was trendy, in what was cutting edge, in what fit well with their culture and looked good. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 says to them, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Right? So the Corinthians were really caught up in power, in knowledge, in wisdom, in in trendiness, in influence. And Paul says to them, why would you think God operates that way? Just take a look in the mirror. Who were you when God called you? Were, Were many of you celebrities? Were many of you PhD scholars? Were many of you politicians of great influence? No, you were mostly nobodies. Why would God call a bunch of nobodies to be his people? So that everyone who watches them would understand that the good that comes from this comes from God. The power is God's. It's not, it's not ours. Right? Any human being who's really trendy, who's really wise, who's really influential can gather a crowd. Like That's how the world works. We gravitate towards people like that. God says, I'm going to call the nobodies and I'm going to use them to change the world so that everybody will realize where the power is coming from. That's the kind of ministry that Jesus built. He did everything you're not supposed to do. He focused on the lowly and the unimportant and those who could not do anything for him in return, demonstrating that this is God's power that is at work. This is something different than what we would expect. So we establish this big picture umbrella that the the point of this text is that Jesus is going about a ministry that's going to bring hope to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the outsiders. So now that we have the umbrella set in the big picture, what exactly is Isaiah prophesying will happen? Well, first up, we have a declaration that Jesus' mission is from God. It's not from men, right? Verse 18, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. This is the language of God saying, this is my servant. This is the one I'm commissioning. I am putting my spirit on him and I am sending him out to do my work. This is the language of a servant, of a messenger, of a savior. This is the same text that was quoted at Jesus's baptism, right? Behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God has commissioned Jesus to go out into the world. And so what Jesus is working to accomplish is not something that men thought up. It's something that God is accomplishing. So no wonder it looks unexpected to us, right? Because God doesn't operate like we do. 
God doesn't make the, the values and the, and the choices and the priorities that we tend to make, right? Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God says, I'm thinking on a whole different wavelength than you are. I'm thinking about things that you're not, quite frankly. As the heavens are higher than the earth, that's how much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts. Tonight might be difficult because it's going to be cloudy, but on the next clear night that we have, go outside and look up at the sky. Look up at the stars. Look at how far away they are. God says, as, as far away as those stars are from the earth, that's how far beyond your thoughts my thoughts are. That's the different wavelength I'm operating on. And so everyone in Israel had their expectations of what Jesus would do. But ultimately, it was God who said what Jesus was going to do. Ultimately, it was God alone who set the agenda that Jesus would come to accomplish. And because God thinks differently than we do, why would we expect anything different than a surprising, unexpected Savior? So what was the agenda? Well, it was the proclamation of justice to the Gentiles. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So what exactly does this mean, that he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles? It sounds good, right? It sounds like a, a good thing, but that word justice is kind of nebulous, right? It's hard to grab a hold of it and understand what exactly is he saying here. In fact, the word can even be a little controversial today because of it usually being attached to this idea of social justice. And is that a good thing? Is that not a good thing? What are we supposed to be about as a church? Well, let's look at it in context. In the biblical context, the word here in the original Greek is the word krisis. In the most general sense, it means a judgment that is given. Like think in a courtroom, right? At the end of a court, all the, the evidence is heard. And what does the, the judge or the jury do? They render a judgment. They say, this is the truth of it. This is how it is. And usually in the Bible, this word is used of the judgment of God, right? When God lays down a judgment, a decision. And it can be in either the positive or the negative sense, right? It can be judgment for those who have been wrongfully oppressed, or it can be a, a judgment uh, of what we tend to think of as, as a, a judgment, a condemnation of evil and wickedness. So the word here in the context of Isaiah 42, when it says, he will bring justice, proclaim justice to the Gentiles, justice is used in this idea of God's decisions, his law, his decrees, his rule over the world, right? In a courtroom, who decides how things go? It's the judge. The judge is the one who has the authority. This text is saying that Jesus is going to proclaim justice. He's going to proclaim God's authority to the ends of the earth. And while the word can mean a painful judgment, and that's probably what the Pharisees are thinking as they read this text. Yeah, God's going to bring justice to the Gentiles. He's going to chop them down to size, prop us up where we belong. This isn't that kind of judgment, right? And we know that because of where verse 21 takes us. This is a judgment that will bring hope to the Gentiles, not one that's going to tear them down to size. So God is going to take his law. He's going to take his decrees that Israel has known, and he's going to spread them through Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's the promise. He's going to proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and they will hope in him. So if that's the promise, if that's what Jesus is doing, how's he going to go about it? And that's what we get in verses 19 and 20, right? He's going to be a conquering king like the Israelites expect, right? 
He's going to be a public figure who stands in a place of prominence, who drives his enemies out before him, and who lays down the law, right? Well, not so much. No, he's going to do this with meekness and with gentleness. Verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Now here, I think, is where we get a hint of this is why Matthew's making the connection between what Jesus is doing. He's being secluded. He's going away. He's walking away from a fight. It's a fulfillment of this notion that he's not going to quarrel or cry aloud. He's not going to be this big, brash public figure who everybody hears his voice and his law echoing throughout the streets. He's going to be one who does his work in secret, largely unnoticed by the important people of the world, by the important people in Israel. He goes about ministering to the low, to the outcast, to the unimportant, to the forgotten, to lepers, to Gentiles, to people who the, the culture at large would not have expected, would not have valued. And he does it in secret, as we see right here, without fanfare, without announcements. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount where he talked about how we ought to go about doing good. He said, don't have a trumpet announced in front of you when you give to someone. Don't blare it on the five o'clock news, but you go about your work of good in secret. And your father in heaven, who knows the secret things, will see, and he'll be your reward. He will reward you. You don't have to go out trying to blow your own horn, is where we get that phrase. And this meekness and gentleness isn't just seen in the respect of Jesus doing this away from the public eye. It's also seen in the way he treats the vulnerable and the unimportant. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. We're told that Jesus won't break a bruised reed and he won't quench a smoldering wick. Now, what is this getting at? Well, as often happens in prophetic literature and prophetic imagery, he's using poetic language, poetic imagery to get a point across to us. Right? Jesus is not really concerned with plants and candles in this text, but it's telling us something about the way he will interact with the weak with the vulnerable, with the hurting. He won't break a bruised reed. So for reeds, I want you to think about thick grasses that you would find in a marshland, right? On a day like today, imagine you're at the beach. It's a fantastic uh, example and a fantastic exercise to take about in the dead of winter. Imagine you're at the beach, sunny, beautiful day. You're by the shore. You start walking around and you come by a, a pond or an inlet and you see marsh grasses growing, these reeds. They're not particularly strong plants, right? You could go up to one, snap it with very little effort. And sometimes you walk over them without even realizing it, and they get bent and they get beat down. And that, that's what I want you to picture here, is these grasses that have been walked on by people. They're not particularly strong to begin with, but now they're kind of hunched over, they're brittle, they're bruised. And what the text says is Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds. Even the most weak and vulnerable he takes care and concern for, right? These are the kind of plants that you can break without even trying. Simply by neglect or accident. But Jesus is so concerned for the weak, for the vulnerable, that we're told he, he doesn't break bruised reeds. Even the most insignificant, the weakest, he takes care for. And we're told he won't quench smoldering wicks. So the, the imagery here is of a candle that is just about to go out. Now, it's not like the Advent candles that we had here a couple weeks ago that might have had gunpowder inside of them because they were this massive burning flame. No, no, this is a candle that just has that slightest little glow. It's about to go out. 
Now, what does it take to put out a smoldering fire? What do you have to do in order to quench a smoldering fire? Well, if you've had much experience with them, you don't really have to do anything at all. You just wait a few minutes, and it goes out. Like a couple times in the last couple weeks, I've tried to get our fire pit going out back, but with wood that's wet and soaked through, and it's a lot of work to get that fire lit and to keep it going. you got to nurse it. If I just walk away for a couple of minutes, it's gone. It's out. The imagery here is of a smoldering wick, barely there, one that just by simply walking away, you can extinguish. And we're told Jesus won't snuff one out. In doing his good work of bringing justice to the nations, to the Gentiles, to the world, he won't mow over the weak and the vulnerable as collateral damage. And that's striking to us, right? Because a lot of times we think of what's the goal that I got to accomplish and I'm going to head down, shoulder forward, whatever I got to do to get there, that's fine. And often in our wake, we'll mow right through the weak, the vulnerable, the hurting. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't leave a trail of bodies behind him. And Jesus wasn't without his hard edges, right? We've seen him confront the Pharisees. We're going to see that continue to happen. We've seen him say hard things. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount, the calling to to run from anger, from hatred, from lust, from greed, from pride, from all these things that come so naturally to us. And he says, you're going to have to get ruthless in fighting sin. You're going to have to get ruthless in following me. You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to suffer. Jesus says hard things all the time. But in saying hard things, he always takes care to comfort the weak, the vulnerable, the oppressed. And how long is he going to continue on in this gentleness? Until he finishes his mission, right? A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. He's going to be like this from start to finish, full of care and gentleness and grace. I mean, think back to what we, we read just a few verses ago. It feels like longer because of the break we took for Christmas, But it's only been since the end of chapter 11 that Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is a good Savior. This is a Savior who is not just the God of the universe, full of justice and truth. This is a Savior who came and walked in our shoes, who became a brother and a friend to us, and cares for us in our weakness. When we're down on the mat, he doesn't just say, All right, get up, come on. Suck it up and get on with life. Now he's there tenderly picking us up, helping us along, taking us where we need to get. And sometimes that's a hard and painful process, but always with care and compassion. Jesus always, never loses sight of our weakness in his love for us. He never mows us over to get where we need to be. That's why Matthew is saying here, that's why Jesus withdrew from the Pharisees instead of pressing a conflict. That's why he told people, tell no one what has happened to you. That's why he stayed in the shadows, why he kept things quiet. Ask yourself, if Jesus had taken the fight to the Pharisees here, if he'd taken them on at every opportunity, if he'd had people proclaim his ministry and put him in the public eye as much as possible, how would things have been different? Would he have ministered to more people? Maybe. It's possible he would have had a bigger crowd around him if he were in the temple courts in Jerusalem than in some backwater town like Capernaum. I can tell you he would have made it to the cross quicker because the Pharisees are already after him at this point. 
And if he would have just pressed into them full speed ahead, he would have ended up on the tree dying for our sins even faster. But I want to ask you this. How many nobodies would have come to him if he was a much more public, big-time figure? How many nobodies would have been healed by him, would have been forever changed by encountering him? How many lepers do you think he would have put his hand on? They weren't welcome in the temple gates in Jerusalem, in the courts. Now, they came to Jesus precisely because he wasn't where everybody thought he would be. They had a door open for them that they wouldn't have had open otherwise. How many Gentiles, you think, if they just see Jesus squaring down against the Pharisees, would have just dismissed this as a Jewish intramural feud and said, what does that have to do with me? Instead, we find Gentiles seeking Jesus out, coming after him because they see something that's different, that's captivating, that's compelling. How many women, how many children, how many illiterate fishermen you think would have been in Jesus's inner circle if he was this big wig preacher in Jerusalem. Jesus accomplished exactly the mission that God gave him to accomplish. He came to die. He came to save his people from his sins. He came to bring hope to the Gentiles. That's why we're here today. As far as I know, none of us are of Jewish descent in this room. We're all Gentiles. We're the nations who needed hope. And God has brought hope to us through Christ 2,000 years after this was written. But as he accomplished this mission, he did so in a way that did everything possible to say to the forgotten, to the hurting, to the outcast, the kingdom of God is for you. The kingdom of God is for you. It's not just for the important. It's not just for the learned, the wise, the religious, the spiritual, the ones who have it all together. It's for you. Come be a part of this family. What is Matthew saying to us in including this prophecy right here where he does? And so by extension, what's God saying to us in this text this morning? He's saying that Jesus did the things he did in order to accomplish the mission that God the Father gave him. To bring justice and hope to the nations in the big picture. And even in the smallest details of ministering to the weak, the forgotten, and the insignificant. So what do we do with this text? This is a tough one to apply, to say, what does it mean for me? How do I apply this to my life? Because there's no direct commands in here, right? There, there's no place in this text where Jesus is saying, you shall do this. The Sermon on the Mount, it's easy to make application. But here, how do I connect this to my life? Well, I'm going to say that how you apply this text to your life is going to depend largely to where you find yourself most in the story. Who in this story are you most like? Are you like the Pharisees in as much as you have a set of expectations that you expect Jesus to fulfill, and when he doesn't fulfill those, you want to clash with him. You want to dismiss him. You want to toss him out the window. If that's you, you need to understand Jesus came to fulfill God's purposes, and very often in life, God's purposes aren't going to look like mine, and they're not going to look like yours. His ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And Christ came into this world to do his father's will, not to, to check off all the things that DJ thinks he needs to do. If you're like the Pharisees, you need to think about that. You need to reflect on it. Maybe you're like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick this morning. You'd say, I, I've got faith, but I am barely hanging on by a thread. I feel like all it would take is the sli slightest breeze and I'm going down. My fire is going out. You need to understand that Jesus knows. 
He understands fully. He cares for you deeply. And he is not going to break you. And he is not going to snuff you out. Even when he calls you to do hard things, and he will call you to do hard things, all the time, you can know, you can trust him that he has your good in mind. And that he'll sustain you in the midst of that hard thing. He'll keep you going because he's not just about the end destination. He's about showing grace and hope and compassion to you on your way to that destination. He will not break you. He will not snuff you out. Or maybe you're like the Gentiles. Maybe you're like those without God who need hope. And you see this Savior, you see this Jesus, and you wonder, what's he about? I've never quite thought about God that way before. You need to understand Jesus came for you. You need to understand Jesus came to bring hope, to bring God's good rule to you, to me, to people like us who have no claim on God's goodness, who have done nothing to deserve his favor, and yet Jesus offers it to us anyway. You need to put your faith in him. And just like the Corinthians we talked about Earlier, you find the wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, the redemption of God in Jesus Christ. Your sins are what he came to deal with. Your past, he is quite capable of taking care of. Forgiveness, redemption, hope are what he offers to you. And this morning can be the first time in your life that you put those connections together. And you set out on a new path. That's not just the same old thing, trying to, to grope along and earn your way to him, but a realization that he has poured out grace for you, for the weak, for the vulnerable, for the outcast, for the unimportant, wherever you might find yourself. As we continue to look at the life and ministry of Jesus, we have to expect the unexpected. We have to know that he came, that he did what he did to fulfill God's mission, and that is good news for people like us. Good news for Gentiles, for the nations who need hope. And it can be good news for your today, for your tomorrow, and wherever God takes you from here. Let's pray.